Hi, I'm Nikki, and here's a few things that are coming up here at Crossroads. So summer is coming soon, and you know what that means. It's almost time for Vacation Bible School. It's crazy that one of the most exciting weeks of our church is practically here. It's gonna take place June 6th through the 10th, and remember that kids from three years old all the way up to fourth grade can join us for a week of worship, crafts, and tons of fun. We're gonna journey through the five Bible stories in the life of Jesus and learn what it means to follow Him. You can register your kids at cccgo.com. And remember, we can't do BBS alone. We need tons of volunteers, and that means you. So please go ahead and sign up today. It's time for Kids Camp at Camp Ileana. Kids who have completed grade three all the way up to grade five can register for this awesome week, and it's taking place June 19th through the 23rd. Be sure to register online at cccgo.com. The deadline to register is technically May 29th, or when the event is full, so be sure to sign up today. If you're in college or are college age, you're invited to our college age summer nights. The first one is gonna be May 31st and they'll continue every Tuesday of the summer. They're gonna be held at the Krantz House in Newburgh. Summer nights are all about relationships, so you won't find any cheesy games or an agenda, just good food, good fun, and lots of good laughs. Head over to cccgo.com college to find out how to be a part of these amazing nights. If you're new to Crossroads or are simply looking for a way to get connected and learn more about our Crossroads family, check out Starting Point. Starting Point's a class that's gonna meet on the first Sunday of the month at 10.15 a.m. and the third Saturday at 6.45 p.m. During this casual 35-minute session, you'll learn some of the ways you can get connected and meet other members of your Crossroads family. Don't delay. Join us at the next Starting Point on June 5th. Childcare is provided, so stop on in and get to know Crossroads. We're so excited to meet you. RSVP online at cccgo.com slash next steps. For more information on these events or the many others that are happening here at Crossroads, you can check your bulletin or go to cccgo.com. About two weeks ago, I stood up here and explained for about 30 minutes or so where our staff and elders sense our God, where, where our church is headed uh, in the next five years or so. Now, the statement to kind of capture this picture that we're all running after as a church in the next five years uh, goes something like this, that Crossroads Christian Church exists to connect everyone everywhere to Jesus by multiplying leaders, campuses, and churches. Now, the most obvious shift that you will probably notice in the coming year is this idea of multiplying campuses. You see, by 2021, we foresee Crossroads being one church with five different locations across the tri-state region. And so, in other words, rather than people coming to us here at our Newburgh campus, we are going to go to them. 
In the next six months, we are going to be launching our second site, which we are simply referring to as our online campus. Our online campus will be an environment for people who would never darken the door of a church building, but would be interested in at least observing and experiencing our weekend services in the comfort of their home through a computer screen or mobile device. Now, we believe that this is a really effective tool to permeate the gospel into people's homes and into people's neighborhoods. Now, our third location that we sense will be uh, launched sometime during the first quarter of 2017, we are going to be calling our West Campus. Now, our, re- our West Campus will be located on the west side of Evansville, all right, and our uh, pastor uh, for that specific campus will be Dave Bowersox. And uh, you need to know that Crossroads West will be a fully functioning local church, a physical site where uh, you will experience worship on a weekly basis, the teaching is the exact same, and other features that you would experience at our Newburgh campus right here on a given weekend, such as hospitality teams, uh, children's ministry, uh, you will experience at that location uh, as well. Now, it is our dream and intention that the 400 of you Westsiders who call Crossroads home uh, will be a part of that campus so that in the end you will be more equipped to reach people right in your neighborhoods, right where you live uh, with the message of Jesus. And uh, at the end of the day, it's just much easier to invite people to a church located right down the street from you. Uh, than it is to invite someone to a church located all the way across on the other side of town. And so again, as we move forward, Crossroads will be one church with multiple locations. Rather than you coming to us, uh, to our community, we're going to say we're we're going to you. Now, two weeks ago, after I preached that message, a young single mom named Stephanie came up uh, to me after service with tears in her eyes, and she said, you know, I I just don't really believe in God. I've lost my faith in him, but lately I've gone through a really tough time in my life, and I've just kind of come to the end of myself. I just want to know, can I be here? And I thought, and I said to her, yeah, absolutely. But I thought to myself, our five-year vision, it's all about Stephanie. You see, when I think of Stephanie, I think about our five-year vision. When I think of our vision, I think about Stephanie. I mean, if Jesus really is, really does contain the power to change and transform people's lives, then isn't it upon us to do whatever it takes to multiply and reach people and connect everyone everywhere to him? Now, I understand that some things are a little bit murky, a little bit cloudy for you at this point in time. I want you to know that that is okay. You probably have a lot of questions about where we're headed, what that's going to look like, what the plan is going to look like, and I want you to know that that is okay, but as we take off from here and as we rise above the clouds, things will become clear and clear for you. So keep asking questions, uh, but know that if you're a little bit confused right now, that that is completely normal and natural, and uh, we, we are going to hope to bring you along uh, as time goes on. Now, as you walked in here today, you noticed that this message is called My One Prayer for You. Uh, About three months ago, a mentor of mine challenged me to begin praying something for my life, for my family's life, and and actually for for each of you in here uh, today. And this prayer is actually scripted out in a letter that we find in the Bible, and uh, we're going to walk through this prayer today. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and jump to the New Testament book of Ephesians. All right, Ephesians is towards the back fourth of your Bibles, right in between the books of Galatians and Philippians. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. That is our gift to you. Take it home with you. Yes, we are telling you to steal from us, all right? 
If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, a Bible can be found on that table right as you walked in uh, just a moment ago. And again, get acquainted with uh, the Word of God. Today we're going to be in chapter 3 of this uh, letter. Now, as you're turning there, understand that a guy named Paul wrote this letter to a church that he had started during the first century. He loved this church very much. And so the entire purpose behind him writing this letter was to remind these men and women of who they were in Christ, where their value and where their worth ultimately came from. And so his whole point was to say, hey, look, your, your worth does not ride upon your rela- relational status. It's not contingent upon your, your title or your position at the workplace. No, it's all about what Jesus has done for you. And so this prayer is about knowing and experiencing where our identity can ultimately be found. Now, as you come in here today, I don't know where you stand with God. I don't know if you're a follower of Jesus or if you're skeptical, if you're seeking. But regardless of where you come from, there is one thing that is just true in life, no matter where you come from. And and that is this, that how we build our life is based upon who we think we are, right? Right? I mean, how we build our life, the decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis, our behavior ultimately comes from who we think that we are. And so this prayer that Paul writes out here is all about us identifying where our true identity can be found. And so this literally affects every part of who we are. And so if you're in chapter 3, we're going to pick up in verse 14, and Paul's going to reflect on the benefits and the goodness of being adopted into the family of God. Uh, Check out verse 14. Here's what we read. Paul says, when I think of all this, when I think about the adoption that I've received because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross, when he said, it is finished, and then he died, and then he rose again, I fall to my knees and I pray to the boss. No. I pray to the man upstairs. No, I I pray to the Father, Paul says, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. And so this image right here of a loving father is the most consistent picture that we have of the identity of God. Now, this picture is, is not by accident whatsoever. You see, a child learns who he or she is in relation to his or her father. And so in a similar way, our Heavenly Father shapes our personal identities and determines our value. This is why consistently throughout the Bible, God invites us to approach him like a child would approach his or her dad. Now, there are a lot of us in here who go through stretches of time where it may be a little bit difficult to connect with God, all right? Me included, I go through that. Now, during those moments... All right? Is it possible that we withhold our trust in him because we're just a little bit uncertain of how much God loves and cares for us as any good loving father would? When I was about nine years old, our family went, for, went, went on a riverboat cruise down the Ohio River near Louisville one evening. And, and as we were getting off the boat that night, we were walking down the stairs. Someone happened to knock the switch that, uh, that triggered the, the wheelchair ramp. And so as people were exiting the boat that night, this wheelchair ramp started making its way up the stairwell. This threw people into mass confusion and chaos, and people were screaming. They didn't know what to do. This wheelchair ramp was headed for this mass amount of people, and and no one knew what to do. The next thing I knew, the ramp was headed directly for me, and before I could even react, my dad came from behind me, picked me up, and threw me out of the way. 
Well, just as that happened, that was just enough time to keep me from harm, but as he was moving me, as he was getting me out of harm's way, the wheelchair ramp trapped his ankle and pinned him against the stairwell. And so my dad was pinned against the stairwell for several hours before they could actually release the wheelchair ramp from the stairwell, and then afterwards they rushed he and my mom both, who was also pinned underneath the wheelchair ramp, to a local hospital because it had literally cut into their ankles. Now, I look back at that experience and realize that if my dad didn't move me out of the way, it would have been my foot that got caught and not his. But you see, in his foresight, he saw harm head in my direction, and so he willingly stepped foot and absorbed, stepped foot into a situation and absorbed the pain for me. Now, let me ask you a question. With a mom and dad who consistently showed me love like that, do you think it was difficult for me growing up to trust them? I mean, not really. I mean, I knew they loved me. They showed me that time and time again. Now, sure, I had my, dis my moments of disobedience where I wouldn't really listen to them. But for the most part, I never had to question their love for me. And so here's the thing. Would anything change for you if that were your picture of God? I mean, what if when your heavenly father foresaw you trapped in your sin with pain headed your direction, he pushed you out of the way and absorbed the blow for you? Now, your issue may be that you've never really comprehended God's sacrificial love. And so let's keep going with this verse. Verse 16, Paul's prayer for this church goes like this. He goes, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts. That's a key phrase that we're going to unpack in detail here in just a minute. As you trust in him, your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. Now we get that word make from a Greek word that literally means to cause, to dwell, to bring forth a home or a house. And so Paul is literally praying that these people would so trust Jesus that they would allow Christ to, to take over their life. Now, time out here for just a minute. If you spent any, any extended period of time in the church, you've probably heard phrases like, you know, release control to Jesus, give your life over to him, or, or give him your all, surrender to him. I mean, it could just be me, but have you ever wondered what in the world does that really mean? <laughs> I mean, I know I have. And so to bring forth some clarity here today and to understand what Paul is saying in this prayer, for the next few moments, we're going to use that imagery of a literal home to help us see the different parts of our lives that Jesus wants to inhabit and dwell. I mean, if it's true that how we build our life is based upon who we think we are, and if it's true that our identity is found in Jesus, in Jesus alone, then doesn't that mean that Christ has the right to dwell in each part? of our home and each part of our house. Now, the first and probably most visible feature to every house is what we would simply refer to as the front porch, right? I mean, it's nearly impossible to hide your front porch from someone who may just be casually driving through your neighborhood. It's the main entrance where guests and neighbors come over, they form their first impression of who you are in your home. I mean, for example, if you still have your Christmas decorations up during this time of the year, what would that tell me if I were to come over to your house? It would tell me that you're from Kentucky. 
It's okay, I'm from Kentucky, all right? I can make that joke. <laughs> now, everyone here, believe it or not, has a front porch to your life. I mean, it's that part of you that is visible and obvious to outsiders. It's, it, it's about the image that maybe you're running after every time you're around somebody. And if you want to know what your front porch consists of, I think one of the most obvious, accurate revealers of it is to simply go back and scroll through what you've posted on Instagram or Facebook Maybe it'll tell you something. Because you see, here's why this matters. You build your image, I build my image, based upon where I think and where you think your worth is found. You see, your front porch can uncover where you've been deriving your identity and your worth. And so, if you're that guy who takes lots of selfies in front of the gym mirror while you're doing arm curls, aren't you just wanting people to admire your body? I mean, aren't you finding a little bit of your worth in, in your, physical, uh, your, your physical body? And let me just tell you something, nobody cares, all right? <laughs> if you're always talking about who you know or who you had lunch with, aren't you just wanting people to respect you? Or if you're always telling people about how chaotic your days are with screaming babies, dirty diapers, and sleepless nights, could it be that you just want somebody to notice how much you're sacrificing as a parent? You see, we all have front porches, right? We all give off impressions. We all give off images. But if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of our front porches have been built around impressing people, improving ourselves. And so let me ask you, what does this feature of your life say about your source of identity. What does it say about maybe where you've been finding your value and your worth? I mean, could it be that this part of your life is simply a revealer of some other, stu of some other stuff going on that Jesus wants to handle? And so if I were to come over to your literal house, I'd step on your front porch, I'd then walk through the doorway, and I might step into this room, and that is simply the, the living room, right? The living room. Now, this room in our life is about our different relationships. Now, sometimes we get to pick and choose who sits in this room, and other times we don't, like in-laws and outlaws, right? <laughs> Yet one thing we learn from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church is that different and difficult people in our life teach us more about the grace and mercy of Jesus than those who maybe we, na we, we naturally get along with. You see, this was a church that was made up of Jews and Gentiles who were just non-Jews. It was common for the Jewish Christians to think that they were superior to those who came to Christ having never practiced Judaism. These Jewish believers saw themselves as more pure, more righteous, more obedient, and more acceptable in God's sight. But I want you to take a look at verse 6 in Ephesians chapter 3. Again, Paul goes after a person's identity. He says this, both... Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news, simply talking about Jesus dying on the cross for every person, three days later rising from the dead and saying, hey, here's the deal that I'll offer you. I'll give you a way out of your sin. Both who uh, believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because why? They belong to Christ Jesus. You see, the deeper issue facing this church was how the Jewish Christians were viewing themselves. You see, beneath the surface, these men and women believed that value came from heritage, upbringing, and obedience. 
And so when the Gentiles maybe didn't measure up to that, they treated them like outsiders. Now, our tendency is to view someone's worth through the lens of them being just like us. If they're similar to us, then we like them. But if not, get away from me, (laughs) right? And we all have our way of doing this. I'll never forget, one of my first weekends, my very first weekend here at Crossroads, I was, I was introduced in service about three years ago. And after service, I stood at the back doors greeting people, greeting you as you were leaving uh, this service. One of the first people to come up to me was a lady who shook my hand. And she said, well, I hear we're trying to be more diverse as a church. I guess that's why we brought you on. <laughs> and so I responded by saying, no habla inglés. No lie, you can't make this up. The very next lady to come up to me, she stuck her hand out and said, welcome to Evansville. We have a lot of Mexicans in our area. I guess you'll feel right at home. Now, I'm Cuban, all right? But I remember thinking to myself in this moment, what kind of church is this? And why did I move my family halfway across the country to be here? And so we all have our own ways of viewing people that are more superior to others. Now, I suppose that in God's original design, he could have made every person just like you or just like me. But I mean, honestly, how boring would that have been? And so in his infinite wisdom and originality, our creator has uniquely molded and shaped each of us with different looks, personalities, and passions. But honestly... It's those differences that we have with with one another. Those are the things that can bring us and produce a lot of frustration for us. Now, here's the thing. I don't know what kind of relational dysfunction you're experiencing right now. I don't know what kind of conflict you have in your life. Perhaps you were served with papers this past week. Maybe a friend from high school started spreading some rumors about you. Perhaps it's an issue with a child that just won't go away. But when it comes to the living room of our life... Honestly, it will always be a messy place no matter who is sitting there. And you see, Paul knew that. I mean, that was certainly true for the church in Ephesus. That's why after scripting out this prayer, he he went on to write this in chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you, Paul says, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, I want you to notice how Paul didn't just step in and and write how they were supposed to treat one another. Why? Because, again, how you build your life is based upon who you think you are. And so before informing these people of the more practical aspects of a relationship, being humble, being patient, loving one another, he reminded them of their secure identity in Jesus. That's what he meant when he said that, This is a calling that they have received. Now, this may be really painful for you to hear. And your first reaction might be denial. But here's the thing. We have all been that messy, broken, needy, and insecure person that honestly God could have chosen to overlook. But instead, the Bible tells us that while we were still God's enemies, Jesus stepped foot in our place and died for us. And my story goes like this, that even when Jesus had every right to part ways with me due to my unfaithfulness, never once did Christ serve me with divorce papers. 
And what I'm not saying is that by simply rem- remembering what Jesus did for you is going to cause every relational issue you have to disappear and to be fixed. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that it's a good start. And it could help you shift your focus. And so practically speaking, if you want Jesus to dwell in this room, in this part of your life, I want to challenge you to begin asking people in your living room this one question. What's it like to live on the other side of me? And what's it like to live on the other side of me? Now, I know what you're thinking right now as I'm asking this question. But Patrick, I'm not the issue. (laughs) I'm not the problem here. And you may be right, but say you did ask that question, and say something were to surface that that maybe you were unaware of, what kind of message would be communicated to the other person if you swallowed your pride and you asked for forgiveness? I mean, how would the dynamics of the relationship change if you chose to step foot in their world and see yourself from their perspective? I asked this question to my wife, Savannah, the other night as we were going to bed, and I had sensed that that we had been a little bit distant from one another, and you need to know that Savannah and I are very different from each other, all right? She's very spontaneous. I like things to be more orderly. Uh, She is very uh, optimistic about things, and I tend to be more of a realist, all right? And so when I asked this question, some stuff came out that I was unaware of. And, and, you know, the short of it was this, that I had just been a drag to be around lately, and I had been draining for her, and I had just been boring. And you know what? She was exactly right. And so out of that conversation, I started making some adjustments within the past few days. And so now I go home in the evenings, and I fake excitement for things I don't really care about. She's here, and that stinks. Uh, (laughs) But I will tell you what what God's been teaching me in my marriage. And that is that if you really want Jesus to be a part of this room in your life, if you really want him to to take over your different relationships, then it is going to require you at some point to start viewing the other person as more valuable than yourself. And why would we do that? I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, but Jesus actually 2,000 years ago, he, he looked at you, he saw you, and he considered you more valuable than himself. And so what if the greatest way for us to experience grace is to extend it to others rather than always expecting others to extend it to us? Well, let's keep going here. The third room in the house that we get to is probably the best of them all. It's the bedroom. All right, it's the bedroom. This room symbolizes exactly what you think it means, our sex life. And the answer is yes. Yes, Jesus wants to live in this room as well. A lot of us avoid talking about sex in the church because we've been told or taught to think that the bedroom is off limits. But truthfully, our sexuality is a precious gift from our creator to be explored frequently in its proper context. Now, of all the rooms that we've looked at today, This is the one that can burn down our house the quickest. And so if we don't talk openly and honestly about it in church, where are we going to learn about it? 
Now, the way that we sexually express ourselves is delicate, and so there is a right way to enjoy it. Now, since the bedroom was God's original idea to begin with, he knows how it works best. And so the boundaries that he gave us at the beginning of time when he created our first parents, Adam and Eve, it goes kind of like this. Here, here's a picture to help you understand it. That sexual expression is to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife, a male and a female, in the confines of a marital covenant. And so that means that inside this box, that's a room, that's a space in your life that Jesus can bless, that's a space that Jesus can dwell. But anything outside of this, Jesus says, that, that, that's not my best for you. I can't dwell there, I can't, I can't bless that. You see, sexual acts are to be performed between a male and female who are husband and wife. It is a physical expression of two becoming one. That's why during intercourse, bodies literally connect. So it's an act that binds you to the other person through the release of a highly addictive chemical in your brain called dopamine. Now, this is one of the reasons why it's so difficult for people to break up with somebody that they've had sex with. This is why it's so difficult to break an addiction to pornography. You see, at the moment of your orgasm, your brain is literally rewiring neurological pathways in your mind to bind you and attach your body to that person or that computer screen that is before you. Now, it just so happens that during the city of Ephesus, during the first century, they it's a very sexualized town. Not much has changed. And so knowing all this is going on, Paul steps into the world and he says this in chapter 5. He says, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. And so this is Paul's way of saying, hey, look, you've got to guard the bedroom. You've got to protect it. Now what happens in the bedroom is personal and it is private. It's between you, your spouse, and God. But if we don't allow Jesus to reign in this room, eventually it will spill over into other areas of our life. Therefore, if you are single or dating, keep being patient. I mean, I know that the impulses seem irresistible now, and, but just trust me when I say that it can bring you a lot of hurt and it can bring you a lot of pain. This sounds cheesy, this sounds cliche, and not all that inspiring, to be honest with you, but one of the best ways that you can love yourself, love the person that you're with, and or the person that you will one day marry, is to keep waiting and to be patient. Now, if you're married, my encouragement to you from Scripture is to enjoy sex with your spouse exclusively and frequently. Now, the book of Proverbs talks a lot about this and indicates that sexual fulfillment is kind of like drinking water. In chapter 5, verse 15, here's what the writer says about sex. Drink water from your own cistern, inside that box, running water from your own well. And so the question for you probably is, well, how often should I drink water? How often should you drink water in your marriage? How about this? Whenever you're thirsty. <laughs> Now, let me be honest with the wives in here for just a minute. If sex is like drinking water, then our culture is like living in a really hot desert for your husband. <laughs> and if you expect your husband to only receive water from you, then what would it look like to offer him something to drink frequently? Like maybe every day. <laughs> Happy Father's Day, all right? <laughs> Now, men, your, your wife 
deserves to be pursued and loved. And if your wife struggles to have sex with you, chances are it has little to do with your beer belly, your back hair, or your dragon breath, all right? (laughs) But what if your sex life is on life support because of your lack of attention and affection towards your wife? My experience has been is this, that her desire to serve you will only increase as much as your willingness to sacrifice for her every single day. And so in each of our lives that Jesus wants to reign, we, we have a front porch, we have a living room, we have a bedroom. Well, it wouldn't be much of a house if we didn't have this last feature of our home, and that's this, our closet. I mean, of all the rooms in your home, this is the one that you don't want others to see, right? It's where your messes can be found. It's where we hide things. And the truth is, we all have closets, We all have stuff in our life that we would rather not expose. Maybe inside your closet is the voice of a mom who who kept telling you growing up that that you're never going to measure up to anything. Inside your closet is the time that you got your girlfriend pregnant and maybe paid for an abortion. Your closet is your DUI. You see, our closets may be the smallest rooms in our lives, but they can also be the most powerful and influential We go to great lengths to keep that door sealed because whatever is in there, honestly, it brings us a lot of pain and shame. But can I tell you something that I've been learning lately? It doesn't scare Jesus. It doesn't intimidate him. You see, that's a part of your house that Jesus sees and he still wants to inhabit and take control. And so could it be that only until we open could it be that only until we open that door to him will we experience the freedom that he has in store for us. I want you to look again at verse 17 in Ephesians 3. Paul says this then then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. You and I will not open the closet door for people that we just don't trust, right? And the reality is we don't trust people that don't love us. And so let me ask you this one question. Could you trust Jesus knowing that he has seen your closet and yet he still chose to die for you anyways? Now when it comes to our life as a whole, our our tendency is to only give Jesus a room here and there. We'll let Jesus have our front porch, but we kind of want to hang on to the living room. Or we might give him the bedroom, but we tell him, hey, the closet's off limits. And you see, that's kind of our way of maintaining control in the face of surrender. But the truth is, Jesus doesn't want a room here and there. Jesus, he wants the whole entire house. And yet the answer is not to just try harder. No, deep down, trust is what leads us to surrender. And that can only happen when we know love is present between us and God. Perhaps that's why Paul ends his prayer by saying this. He goes, your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. You see, the width, length, height, and depth of God's love is another way of saying that God wants his love to flood into every room of our life. You see, your surrender to Jesus will only go as far as your understanding of his love for you. And so my one prayer for my life, my one prayer for my family's life, and my one prayer for each of you in here today 
is that collectively we would allow the grace and the kindness and the mercy of Jesus to so permeate our lives that we will gladly surrender each room to him every moment of every day. Now we're almost done here. And honestly, it would be pretty pointless to hear everything that we've heard for the past 30 minutes and to not do anything about it. And so what I want to do is I want to just leave you with a question today. And I want you to respond to this question on your own. And so before I ask this question, I want you to go ahead and pull out your phone or pull out your bulletin or some piece of paper to write down the answer to this question. Now, as we've talked about the front porch, the living room, the bedroom, and the closet, chances are there are some areas of our lives that are easier for us to surrender than others. But again, Jesus, he doesn't just want a room here and there, right? He wants the whole house. And so sometimes this is an everyday, moment-by-moment, intentional decision that we make to, to give, to give God control, to, to surrender to him. But you know what? Sometimes it does require us to at least start by surrendering one room, or at least to surrender the next room of our life that we've been withholding, for us to really see and experience that Jesus can be trusted. Therefore, here's my one question that I want to leave with you today. It's this. What is one room that you can give up this week? What is one area of your life that, that you can start going to God to and saying, how should I live this part of my life? Maybe you need to quit maintaining some facade that you feel like you always need to put up when you come to church. Perhaps you need to forgive somebody that you've been holding a lot of bitterness and resentment towards. It could be that this is the week when you're going to bring your porn addiction to light because in darkness it still has its power and it still has its control over you. You see, whatever part of your life that made you the most uncomfortable as I talked about it the past few moments, that's probably the area of your life that, that you need to be surrendering most and maybe you've been hanging on to it too tightly. Now, you may not know exactly what it looks like to give Jesus your whole house or to give Jesus this part of your room, but it can start by by just talking with him about it. God, what does it look like for for me to give you this part of my life? How how would you suggest that that I should treat this person? And you see, what what God is going to show you and reveal to you and allow you to experience is that he can't be trusted. You see, Jesus doesn't just pay for our eternity, but he can show us a better way to live because he wants to free you. He wants to give you that life now so that you can reflect him and experience his love more and more. He wants his love to pour into every part of who you are. Let's pray. We're going to sing two more songs uh, and then we'll be out of here. Jesus, I love you. You and I both know that you're teaching me to love you more and more each day because God, as I love you, it's almost parallel that I surrender more to you. And, and God, I'm not only there yet. None of us will ever be there this side of heaven. But what I do see in your word is that you tell us you can provide us a better way to live, that you give us this full, abundant life. But God, that requires us yielding and submitting to you. And, and some of us were really good at, at submitting the living room, but we're pretty good at also hanging on to the closet. Or we may be good at, at giving over the bedroom to you, but we still feel like we have to maintain this image and facade makes up our front porch. But God, you want our whole house. You want our whole life. And so this week, would you just show us and teach us how you can be trusted? God, as we give over our rooms to you, we 
Would you just allow your love to permeate into that part of our life? We thank you that, that you show us that you are trustworthy. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.